If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Hello and welcome to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine, and this is the 3rd of our November 2011 issues. Don't forget, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and by subscription. Our website is historyextra.com and you can follow us at twitter.com slash historyextra or indeed facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up, we have... We were there for the rest of the day, so we took our boots off. And the next morning, we went to put our boots on and they were all frozen. That was World War II veteran Ken Hay describing his experiences as an Allied POW on the long march across Europe. The really big um, uh, question there is one that shatters all pre-existing lines of... um, finds a political alignment over something like slavery. That was Richard Hussey on a debate about sugar and slavery that split Victorian Britain. In our December edition, BBC History magazine deputy editor Rob Attar has written a piece about the Long March in the Second World War, where Allied POWs were forced to trek for three months across Europe in the dying months of the conflict. As part of that article, he interviewed three war veterans, Ron Last, Doug Hawkins and Ken Hay, MBE. Here for the podcast are some further extracts from those interesting interviews. In our December edition, I've written a piece about the Long March in the Second World War. That was when Allied prisoners of war were forced to trek for three months across Europe in the dying days of the conflict. As part of that article, I interviewed three war veterans – Ron Last, Doug Hawkins and Ken Hay, MBE. Here, for the podcast, are some further extracts from those interviews. To begin with, here is Ken Hay describing the story of his capture. Aged only 18, he crossed over to Normandy a couple of weeks after D-Day. Not long after that, he was part of a patrol that inadvertently ended up in a German camp. 
Immediately the firing started and there was all hell let loose with grenades coming out and tracer bullets coming at you and so on. The, you know, the world all went AWOL. And uh, my brother came spinning back, dropped no next piece, yeah, you can follow me. And he was gone and I didn't even know which way he went. And I'm very green and I was uh, rather frightened. Can <laughs> I scared stiff, actually. <laughs> and... Uh, and then it all, well, after a boob of firing away and the grenades were going out and so on. And then, uh, well, yes, it all went quiet after a while. But that went on for some while. Then it all went quiet. And I was with, a, I was with the, mach the machine gunner, Cliff Broad, the, our, our brain gunner. And he said, what should we do? So I said, I don't know, we can't go forward by ourselves. And there was a big tree. Where well, this bank went up, there was a mm. big tree and a big branch, a whole big branch of it had been lopped off and was laying down on the ground. You could see it. Although it was dark in the middle of the night. You could see it laying down. So if we crawl under that, I reckon if they're going to, if they're forward, if they retreat we may be able to see in the morning and make our way back. So she said, fair enough. So we gradually crawled over, got onto this big branch where I laid my rifle next to me and he laid his gun next to me next to him and made ourselves comfortable to see out the night and squaddies uh, the jerrys must have been in this well they were in this other hedge at the top they must have been watching us they waited till that we couldn't yeah. fire because we've got the thing by and then they stepped out with their machine guns and hand a hock and we were prisoners now here's ron last an RAF bomb aimer recalling the moment when his plane was shot down over Berlin in January 1944. It's like we're on the top of a double-decker bus flying through an illuminated city with all the flares that they put up. It was ne nearly daylight. Oh, you could have read a newspaper anyhow. I mean, um, quite honestly, it... it they, they couldn't miss us. I mean, um, we must have been silhouetted against the the sky uh, as we went went through. The aircraft was uh, sort of down here on the starboard side. And he'd come up there and he... He fired, and he got the rear gunner and the mid-upper gunner, and he caught me, and he caught the skipper. And there was a bang, and I turned, and there was a hole in the aircraft kind of thing. The skipper told us to bail out, and I was number one to bail out first. I got out. Well, you knew you had to get out, or otherwise you were going to die, I suppose. I mean, they said they used to jump out and count ten and pull your ripcord. Well, I didn't count ten, <laughs> but I must have pulled the ripcord. And I, that was, and then it was funny. Looked down and there was all these fires. And I thought, good Lord, I'm going to land in that. And common sense came forward. And... Um, I knew the wind was going to blow me away, and of course it did blow me away from the fire. Ron landed wounded in Berlin, but in some ways he was fortunate. 
As an RAF man, he was taken initially into Luftwaffe captivity and, despite many privations, was treated relatively well by his captors. At one point in the hospital he was recovering in, they even offered to give him a bath. The sister said I could have a bath. Jolly good. So they gave me a little square, inch square, I suppose, of soft soap. Now, you know, with soft soap, if you drop it into the water, it's gone. So we had... Herman had to take me up for a bath. So rifle and bayonet, he takes me up to a bath. See? He more or less gives me his rifle and bayonet to hold, but he fills up the bath. He takes off his tunic, rolls up his shirt sleeves, and put... Good! He helps me in the bath. Well, of course, I could do the front, but I couldn't do the back. And so, me, I need to wash my back. Then he, oh, good. And he dried me and took me back, you know. Of course, he was a bit simple, but um, he'd give me a lovely bath. Back in France, Ken Hay found himself in a prison of war camp with lots of other Allied captives. On one occasion, he spent a day assisting in a German medical ward. It wasn't a very nice day at all. In the morning I was, I was, I was doing, um, carrying German wounded in on stretchers into this very old hospital, all stone floors and whatnot. A mum poor sod was brought in, the ambulances came in and we were carrying the stretchers in. And one chap was there and he, he was leaking blood yeah. all over the place, you know. Eventually we lifted him into the into the uh, operating theatre, and then they took over. The Jerry in charge said, clear that up. And this pool of blood had gone right across the, the stone floor of the corridor, you know. So I said, where's the things? And I went and found myself a, a bucket and a mop. But it wouldn't work because as I touched the blood, it had all congealed. And the whole thing moved like a thin strip of jelly. So I had to go and get myself a broom or something and cut it up into chunks and lift it into my bucket and, and did that. After I'd done that, they put me up into in charge of a ward, or orderly in a ward. That was murder. I had, uh, I had put two poor Jerry tank people over in the corner. They'd been in a brew up, you know, where, they, where the tank catches fire. And... Uh, they were covered in bandages and the, the smell of burnt flesh was quite horrific. And, and you had a little, through the bandages, they left a little nostril for the holes, a little bit for the mouth, and just a slit for their eyes, but all the rest was bandages. And I had a miniature teapot, and I had to keep giving them sips of water every so often. And as you bent over, the smell of burnt flesh, I don't know if they made it or not, but... And then I had... Uh, Two laddies, only they were younger than me actually. One had his leg blown off, one had his arm off. And uh, every time they wanted, because all, all, all day, all the rest of the afternoon, it was Tommy Pisson, Tommy Scheisson, and I was getting the bottle for them to pee and the pan for them to sit on. And of course, these kids, one had with no arm, he couldn't balance himself, so I had to sit and hold him on while he was doing his business and then wipe his bottom for him. And then uh, uh, it wasn't very pleasant. 
Ken was later transferred to the East and ended up in a camp in what is now Poland, working down a mine with other prisoners of war. He recalls the unusual steps they took to keep themselves clean after this grimy work. I often look at things from what the little green men on Mars think of what's going on down on, on Earth. Yeah. And, and when we came off the shift at the coal mine, we were allowed 10 minutes hot water, because we were all black. We had 10 minutes hot water, and we, had a, we didn't have soap, we had a... They called it soap, but it, it was like, more like pumice stone. It didn't have any, it just mm. pr- produced a scum. And so we'd all stand in a circle, doing the blows back in front. The, the chap in front who his back while somebody was doing yours. Of course, all the orifices, they never got clean. They were all black, and these were black, and these were black. But, and I often think the little green men must have thought this was some form of weird form of homosexuality, <laughs> all these blokes standing in a circle. Ron Last eventually made it to Stulagluf III, now in Poland, which is best known as the location of the Great Escape. Ron Last, however, departed in a very different manner. In January 1945, he joined hundreds of thousands of other Allied prisoners of war who were marched out of their camps into the coldest winter for a generation. We left Sarkin 3am. It was snowing, and of course, all we had, all, all I had on was a cheap pair of American leather shoes. Uh, pair of socks, bottle dress, my sweater, an, over, an RAF overcoat, and a um, forage cap. I mean, I I didn't have any extra uh, equipment, and it was snowing. Now, I mean, all we could do was to carry a bit of food that we had and a blanket. Without sufficient clothing, all of the prisoners of war suffered terribly from the cold. Here, Ron remembers a desperate step he took to protect himself from the winter. Uh, the next day we went and we halted for a half an hour in a village and it was so cold that there was like a little corral there and on the corral was one of these blankets made up with Odd bits of material, you know, colourful material. A horse blanket. Well, I watched a German civil police. There was a, like a policeman, and I swiped this bloody blanket to keep warm. The cold was so intense that the marchers had to keep their shoes on to prevent them from freezing. This was a lesson Ken Hay learned when he reached a resting place early in his journey. We were there for the rest of the day, so we took our boots off. And the next morning, we went to put our boots on, and they were all frozen. Um, and, and it just hurt to put them on. You had to fight to get it. The, the leather had gone absolutely frozen. You had to wait for you. We had to put them on and then wait for you. But, I mean, we weren't very warm anyway, but we waited. Fortunately, I don't think we had to march that day. So I think we stayed there the day. We just slumped about in our boots and then made sure that we didn't take them off that night and we were able to tie them up. And then we marched the next day. The third veteran I interviewed for this article was Doug Hawkins. He had been captured in Italy and also ended up in an Eastern prison of war camp before setting off on a march. He recalls here how the cold could be fatal. It was the survival of the fittest, of the survival of the fittest, really. If a chap dropped out 
and he was on his last legs. The other Germans left them in the freezing cold because it was freezing. The winters were terrible and they left them on the side of the road and they died that way or they shot them. Food was another problem for the marchers, who were provided with very little by their German guards. Sometimes they resorted to seeking out food in the countryside, but this could have serious consequences. Here's Ken Hay again, talking about what happened to two of his fellow marchers. And Jimmy went out again another night with Ed Walsh, but unfortunately the first house he knocked at at that village, that it was the German burgomaster, and he called the police and, and they were pinched in, so we marched the next day. And Jimmy didn't appear. And about a couple of days later, we were on another rest day, and they were brought in, the two of them, and they were taken into a, a barn, and the doors were locked, and we could hear them bashing them with the rifle butts. J- didn't hear a sound from Jimmy, but Ed Walsh was squealing a bit. The cold, hunger, exhaustion and lack of hygiene left the men susceptible to all manner of diseases. Treatment was generally in short supply, but on one occasion, Doug Hawkins was assisted by some nuns in a convent that they passed by. I had what we I now call uh, hemorrhoids, and I didn't know what they were first time I'd, I'd had, ever had hemorrhoids. So the mother superior came out and she said, does anybody need any treatment, anything you like, you know, you want anything bandaged or anything, so... I was rather embarrassed because I, you know, going like this with hemorrhoids in front of, a, of, of women, you know. Um, so I said, well, I've got this pain and it's rather painful on the backside. And she said, let's have a look. She said, you no need to bother. She said, you, you know, just take down your trousers. And, and she looked and she said, oh, yes, yes. And she gave me a little wax little wax cap box, you know, and in this stuff was was um was a sort of a jelly sort of stuff in this thing. She said, Now put that on night and morning and she said you'll be alright. Well it was, it was marvellous stuff. I put it on night and morning and have any more trouble. Sometimes though, the diseases could be much more serious. Dysentery was particularly rife and one of Doug's friends caught it badly. I had a pal uh, a chap by the name of Stapleton, he was an RAF chap and he was in Camp 344 because I was in the air RAF compound, compound and uh, I I did hear that he never made it at all because he got terrible dysentery and he never made it home. I wrote to his mother when I came back, she said don't write anymore, he didn't make it. So he was the one that I didn't make it. Despite the deprivations, Doug and the other marchers found the strength to keep going. I don't really know how we, how we, how we, how we got on really. You can't, it just was a matter that these folks were there and if you, if you stopped, well, you'd had it. So it was a matter of keep moving and going, going, going. In late April 1945, as the Third Reich collapsed around them, the marchers were rescued by Allied troops by which stage many of them had already been abandoned by their German captors. Some of the marchers had travelled over a thousand miles by foot. Here is Doug Hawkins once more on the moment of liberation. One night, they, we were in this field, they said, camp down, the Germans camped us down, and 
and we stayed there and six o'clock in the morning we woke up and no German guards, they disappeared. They'd left us there and we thought, oh, come on, we're going to find some food. So we went scavenging, couldn't find anything at all, you know, very little. So, and then the, the German guards had disappeared completely. But during the night, we'd heard this uh, machine gun fire and terrible firing of machine guns down, down the road a little way. We don't know how far it was. But we said, oh, and then in the morning, we heard these trucks coming along the road and they were trucks um, just similar to a, a German truck with, and it had white circles on it, you know. We thought, oh, they're coming back. You know, we thought the Germans were coming back. But they came on and they were Americans. It was American. So the Americans took us back to their base, which was an RAF, a, 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 an Air Force thing that they had there and fed us but they gave us food and we just couldn't, it just ran through us, you know, it was just, just impossible to hold anything back. Ken Hay and Ron Last were also liberated. Ken remembers how the first package he received from his American rescuers wasn't quite what he had in mind. Two American tanks appeared and uh, they said that others would be following on, they got to push on, but they, they threw out some food, uh, chocolate bars, chewing gum and so on. And I, I had septic feet by this time and my pal Jimmy had, had found me, he'd gone down to the village and got a, a walking stick. And so I was on this walking stick and, and, and I, I, I hurried down to these tanks up from, down from the farm house. But I was one of the last to get there. And as I did so, I suppose you, the chap probably took pity on me, seeing me limping. And one of these tank guys threw a packet at me. And as I caught it, and it had beech nut on it, and I thought, that's my bloody luck, you know, I want food, and what do I get? Chewing gum. <laughs> and when I opened it, it wasn't even that, it was chewing tobacco. After being treated for their injuries and restored to health, the marchers were finally allowed to return to their families. Here are Doug Hawkins and Ken Hay describing their homecomings. I went back to Mitchum and I was walking across the, the green in front of our house and my niece was outside sitting on the gate and uh, she shouted indoors to my mother and my sister, hey Doug's coming across the green and they couldn't believe it, they all came rushing out and I walked in the green, I walked in the house and that was where I came home. My mother had got my telegram, and of course she told everybody, my Kenny's coming home, and um, included the milkman, she told the milkman. I, I, I went to Barking Station, waited for a bus, and then realised I didn't have any coins, that I only had pound notes. So when the bus came along, I said to the conductor, I wouldn't ask you to change a pound, but I haven't got any money, other than that I've only got pound notes, I've just come home from, from Germany. That's all right, Dad, jump on. And I got free ride of the bus. And I turned the corner on my walking seat and it was the milkman had just delivered the milk to the doorstep and he'd come down and spotted a lone soldier coming round and gone back and rapped on the door and said, Is this your my sister Agnes came to the door, is this your brother? And she looked, It's Ken And the whole yeah. and they all came rushing down to me. <laughs> 
Bleibt mir fit. Ja. That was Rob Attar talking to veterans of the Long March in the Second World War. You can read his feature in the December issue of BBC History magazine. And the TV programme, The Long March to Freedom, is on the Yesterday channel in the UK at various times over the coming week. Now, here's an advertisement. Discover a unique treasure trove of medieval and Renaissance manuscripts assembled by English kings and queens between the 9th and 16th centuries. See these treasures for yourself in the British Library's exhibition Royal Manuscripts, The Genius of Illumination, which runs until the 13th of March 2012. These manuscripts are now our best surviving link to this lost world, and the exhibition features stunning examples which are works of art in their own right, and as a collection, unlock the secrets of the private lives and public personae of the royals throughout the Middle Ages. Highlights include the Book of Hours, made for Margaret Beauchamp, who was a great-grandmother of Henry VIII, the Shrewsbury Book, a wedding gift for Margaret of Anjou and Henry VI in 1445, and Henry VIII's velvet-bound Psalter. For more information and to book tickets, visit the British Library website, www.bl.uk forward slash royal Now, apropos of nothing at all, here is an interesting historical fact. The five-year-old Duke of Gloucester at the end of the 17th century was in charge of two companies of boy soldiers that he drilled in Kensington Gardens. He also had a miniature battleship manned by said boys who bombarded the enemy with bags of peas. If anyone would like to email in with further interesting historical facts, I'll gladly read them out here, if they're true, of course, and give you a name check in return, thus garnering you enduring fame among the 100,000-plus listeners to this podcast. Email me at podcast.historyextra.com with any curious historical facts that you think deserve a wider audience. Okay, our second interview this week is with Dr. Richard Hussey of Plymouth University. He is lecturer in history there and author of a recent paper, Free Trade, Free Labour and Slave Sugar in Victorian Britain. I caught up with him to find out how sugar became the focus of an anti-slavery debate in the 1830s and 1840s. So why is sugar and free trade and anti-slavery tied up together? What's going on there? Well... 1833 is when Parliament passes the Act that emancipates slaves in the British West Indies. Uh, Up until that point, there's been this big popular movement in Britain trying to pressure Parliament to uh, get rid of slavery there, and it has succeeded in 1807 in abolishing the slave trade. One of the weapons that people are using in this sort of popular pressure on Parliament, besides petitioning and other things like that, is boycotting sugar. You get a big boycott of sugar in 1790 to 1792, and then another one in the 1820s. And in both cases, there's an argument being made to ordinary people in Britain, to ordinary families, don't buy slave-grown sugar. Don't buy sugar that's been made by slavery. Uh, Boycott it. If you can try and get some of the more expensive, free-labour-grown sugar, go for that instead. And that's relatively successful. It gets quite a lot of people... Um, involved in uh, boycotting for that end. What intrigued me was after British emancipation in the early Victorian period, you actually get a free trade in sugar. So they're actually allowing in for the first time 
um, slave-grown sugar from other countries, particularly Brazil and Cuba. And so there is an argument which is to say we've emancipated slavery in the British Empire, we're spending uh, a large amount of money per year for the Royal Navy to try and stop the transatlantic slave trade. We're getting other countries to sign treaties with us to suppress the slave trade. And it then seems quite odd that at exactly this moment in 1846, in the interest of getting cheaper sugar coming into Britain, they give up on the idea of um, keeping foreign slave-grown sugar out. So it's, it's just the moment when Britain has now started producing free labour-grown sugar in the West Indies that suddenly they open up the British marketplace. Well, the biggest you know, per head consumer market of sugar in the, year, in the world, they open that up for the imports of foreign slave-grown sugar. Where were they getting the, the free-grown sugar from in the 1790s then? Where was that... Where was that available? It's an attempt to cultivate it, it's so-called East India sugar, so coming from um, the Indian Empire. Mm. Um, and this is uh, apparently expensive and hard to get good quality sugar. So there's an essence to which in the 1790s it was mostly a case of just laying off sugar altogether. Now that's a big thing in the sense that the tea and coffee that people were drinking in the late 18th century and that uh, a lot of people were, were encouraging folks to go to tea and coffee rather than gin, this required sugar because it's such low, um, such low quality uh, tea and coffee that basically nobody would really have been drinking tea and co coffee very much without sufficient sugar to make it uh, palatable. So you actually find that in the 1790s some people are laying off altogether. By the 1820s you've got this more expensive, lower quality East India sugar as an option um, that people could switch to. So there is um, a question in the 1840s of should we open up to free labour, uh, should we open up to slave labour sugar from abroad or should we keep, even though it's now more expensive, free labour sugar in the West Indies? So this must have been an extraordinarily difficult debate for people to be having in the, in the, in the 1840s about what they should be doing. What, 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 what was the consumer's views about this, do you think? Well, there's, there's a huge variety of views on it. Um, one of the complicated things about this question of is there a moral obligation on an anti-slavery country to not accept foreign slave-grown uh, products, the really big um, uh, question there is one that shatters all pre-existing lines, um, lines of political alignment over something like slavery. So you have a situation where the West India planters, the people who had bitterly opposed the abolition of slavery in the West Indies, are saying, no, we need to keep protection for our free-grown sugar in the West Indies. And they're in alliance with some of the abolitionists who had been fighting them 10 years earlier. And, they're set, and they together are saying, we need to protect our experiment in free labour in the West Indies. On the other side arguing for free trade, you have a number of abolitionists who think that free trade and free commerce is the only way you're going to show that free labour can beat slave labour and prove itself uh, superior in the long run. You have um, a number of politicians who are really concerned in this period of the 1840s with the so-called condition of England question, the real, poverty, uh, the real poverty that you have in a lot of industrial communities in the 1830s and 40s. The condition of England question is uh, a term given to it by uh, Thomas Carlyle and this idea that uh, 
people are starting to really worry about Parliament's role and the government's role in uh, addressing the sorts of uh, pain and suffering that have come due to rapid industrialisation and urbanisation in Britain and uh, concern about uh, how how this is going to be uh, improved. So there's an essence to which access to cheap sugar for the masses of the people becomes a huge issue. And because production of sugar in the West Indies declined after British emancipation, this means that the price has been going up. So there's a question of as long as we have a taxes set up to basically keep out foreign free labour production of sugar, and sorry, to keep out foreign slave-grown production of sugar, that means that um, with those tax barriers up, you can't uh, import sugar that will be cheaper than this free labour stuff from the West Indies. Part of the debate was that, uh, th that it was assumed that when people were emancipated, they would be more productive than when they were enslaved. So how did that feed into this, this question? It's interesting. The idea that um, free labour would actually turn out to be more productive than slave labour was actually quite contested in the anti-slavery debates. You actually find that the abolitionists themselves are often quite reluctant um, to push the idea that um, free labour production is always going to be more uh, productive because they're a little bit uncertain of this principle themselves. What I think there is a sense is that um, free labour, that an anti-slavery uh, empire, is going to work out stronger and better in the long run. It just might in the short run not win in the marketplace. And so there's then this, um, this question, if, as you were, of whether at that point do you make poor people in Britain pay more for their sugar to stick true to anti-slavery principles, or do you essentially, as many of them argued, give um, help and support to the slave trade, the illegal slave trade over the Atlantic to Brazil and Cuba by buying slave-grown sugar from those places. And a lot of people uh, would have uh, taken the view on the protectionist side that it was completely rank hypocrisy to be trying to suppress the slave trade with your navy while at the same time buying more sugar from abroad. Obviously, it's to our minds, it uh, seems like a ridiculous um, setup to have done that. But I actually think that the, the free traders, the people who really did think that getting in uh, slave-grown sugar from abroad wasn't an end to the country's anti-slavery commitment, I think that they actually um, had a bit more sincerity than we've often given them credit for, because this is the great era of free trade, of the idea that commerce would sort of bind the world together in a sort of interconnected, um, sort of interdependent, peaceable um, alliance system, almost. And so you do get this idea, I think, of real enthusiasm that um, free trade must, in the end, by encouraging more communication and closer connections between countries, must be better at spreading the sort of enlightened civilizational principles of anti-slavery from Britain. Some of the critics of protection would argue that you would be locking up your brother in his sin if you were to sort of keep out and stop doing business with someone just because you disapprove of their slavery. Their argument is that you're going to have closer connections and closer ties. So there are definitely modern parallels with the sort of arguments in the 1990s about whether or not Western countries should have um, open trade and uh, enthusiastic trade with countries with poor human rights records. Um, so going back to that point, sugar wasn't the only product 
available you know it wasn't the only part of the the economy free trade was was much bigger than sugar mm. so where, where, where does where, when does the free trade movement commence you've got um the anti-corn law league focusing of course on repealing the corn laws mm. which they succeed in doing in 1846 just right. f- perhaps you could just highlight what the corn laws were yeah absolutely The Anti-Corn Law League uh, were focusing on these uh, laws which essentially inflated the profits for for landowners, pretty much usually aristocrats and gentry. They're inflating the cost of grain in Britain. So what it's basically doing is um, keeping out cheap foreign imports of grain and therefore it's going to be more expensive for bread for foodstuffs. So arguably it's bad for industrial workers. Um, it's very good if you own land or it's possibly good if you work on the land as an agricultural labourer because it's supporting the cost of essentially you know, countryside industries. Um, the Anti-Corn Law League is made up mostly of middle-class employers, industrialists, people who um, are you know, involved in mercantile business and trade. And they want to get rid of the Corn Laws because it's good for business to be able to trade Uh, remove trade barriers between countries and the corn laws are seen as sort of a bastion of aristocratic privilege so in some ways the enthusiasm that many some people have towards the free trade movement this great extra parliamentary campaigning operation this is a sort of cause in some ways analogous to the sort of popular anti-slavery movement and you find folks uh, on different sides of the sugar uh, question in free trade when it comes up who had previously been working together in the anti-slavery movement. So in some ways it's one of these issues that it kind of destroys existing sort of fault lines in politics and people end up um, being cast onto different sides of the argument from where they'd uh, previously been. One of the really big questions when it comes to uh, the ethics of trade in the Victorian period is over slave labour and slave production. And besides sugar... The other really big um, item which the British economy relied on that was produced by slave labour was cotton. And of course we all know and can think of the great you know, cotton lords of the north producing uh, uh, cotton goods in the mills. They're relying almost exclusively on American southern slave-grown cotton. And what's interesting is that there is very little attention to the idea that Britain would establish tax laws to discourage slave-grown cotton. And the difference between the cotton and the sugar is that there's a British source of free labour sugar in the West Indies after emancipation, whereas there is really, although they attempt to get um, Indian cotton cultivation going, there's not really another British um, source of supply. So in some ways, we look at this and we see how people who are enthusiastic free traders in corn um, and so on. Some of them then say, well, actually, I'm going to hold back on my free trade principles when it comes to sugar because of the effects on the slave trade. Others would say, well, if we can't be consistent with something like cotton, why should we uh, attempt to sort of uh, assume a sort of false uh, restraint on the one? And so in some ways, it's a very modern debate about the um, essence to which you can try through trade policies to affect a sort of moral foreign policy. Because um, as the Whigs, who were in favour by 1846 of cheaper sugar and a free trade in slave-grown sugar, as they would have argued, 
you can't achieve by a tax on the poor in the cost of their sugar what would only actually be achieved through um, political reform in Brazil or in the Spanish Empire in Cuba. So I do think it's a, a, a debate where it does a bit of disservice to the complexity of it if we want to try and set up the free traders as sort of greedy Victorian capitalists who just want um, cheap sources, cheap markets to sell things to and cheap sources of sugar so they don't have to pay their workers as much. Um, there are some sort of big moral principles involved. Richard Cobden, who's the real head of the free trade movement and the anti-corn law league, um, he says in a private letter uh, in the late 1840s, if I had to choose, I paraphrase this, if I had to choose between being an abolitionist and my free trade principles, I would choose being an abolitionist. But I think you who think we should be staying off slave-grown sugar are completely wrong about it. Um, And so... The 1840 sugar debate results in a loss for those who want to retain uh, government taxes, keeping Britain true to anti-slavery sugar production. But there are some people, some of the radical abolitionists, particularly some Quakers such as Joseph Sturge of Birmingham, who do try to encourage people to voluntarily leave off slave-grown sugar. They sort of accept that the government battle to have a tax that will, will instill this moral purpose in the market, they do accept that that battle's got lost. But they do think that there's an opportunity in um, encouraging people to voluntarily avoid slave-grown sugar for what they call free labour produce. And they also try and get free labour sources of cotton as a way of um, attempting to um, encourage... Uh, people to voluntarily do what they've lost the argument for in national taxation. But it's not very successful. There are some isolated sort of free labour depots which sell things, but essentially the higher price uh, on goods deters people. But what's interesting is that you did have lots of folks in the 1790s and 1820s abstaining from... uh, abstaining from slave-grown sugar within the British Empire, and yet people aren't abstaining from slave-grown produce from abroad in the 1840s. And you can say that's a change due to sort of the spirit of free trade and buy, buy stuff as cheap as you can. But I think that's a bit of a mistake. I think what's really interesting is the kind of national element to this. And this is where it's not such a modern question necessarily, and where the idea of consumer power has limits, I think, in the 19th century. Because although people felt that they could boycott British uh, sugar in order to influence British slave owners in the 1790s and the 1820s, I don't think that there's the same principle in an international field to such a great extent that you can get a lot more people involved in removing a sin from their own country by using consumer boycotts as a weapon than you can get people uh, boycotting foreign slave-grown goods as an attempt to get rid of slavery in a foreign country. I think there's this idea of a sort of powerlessness over the other country. It's curious now to, 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 to think of all, all this debate going on over a, a commonplace product, sugar. But back then it wasn't, it wasn't so commonplace, was it? So what, why, why was sugar such an important aspect of, of the Victorian economy? Sugar was actually a really important part of the diet for even for working people. So in some ways it was actually quite a common article in shopping baskets and so on. 
And the price of, as I say, people's consumption of coffee and tea was actually dependent on their access to sugar. Some people have argued that the number of calories in the huge consumption of sugar by the average person in Britain, they've said that that is actually uh, the calories that produced the Industrial Revolution for British workers. And in some ways, it's certainly true that um, it's a big part of people's shopping baskets. And when you look at the receipts of uh, people's shopping baskets in Manchester in the early 1840s, and you look each year at what the prices are that have been changing in their average weekly shop, the thing that has really gone up is the sugar. So even if tea and coffee are going down in price, if you can't drink it because you don't have your sugar, I have to say I don't take sugar in my tea myself, but back then the quality was such that apparently most people did. Um, then that was something which really hit people hard in the shopping basket and made them um, take notice. So at a time when people are starting to worry about the conditions in the cities and industrial labour, the idea of uh, kicking the poor with a lot of sugar frightened people, partly because tea and coffee were weaning the industrial labourers off gin and other alcoholic drinks, but also because... uh, there was this idea that uh, there was also a sort of fear that it was um, going to be adding insult to injury in terms of the suffering of the British poor during the economic depression in the 1830s and 40s, and that there's always at the back of Victorian politicians' minds this looming spectre of a revolution. That was Richard Hussey of Plymouth University. And now before we finish, here's another advertisement. FindMyPast.ie is the place to discover your Irish family history. FindMyPast.ie is one of the world's most comprehensive Irish family history sites. Here you can find exclusive access to over 3.5 million crime and legal records, almost 2 million names in our collection of directories and almanacs, exclusive land and estate records as well as birth, marriage and death records, census substitutes, travel and migration records and the names and details of the Irish who fought in wars and rebellions. Discover your Irish family history today at findmypast.ie And that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed listening. Next time we'll be talking about medieval illuminated manuscripts and Queen Victoria's relationship with her husband, Prince Albert. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by the inestimable Dave Gibson. Thank you as ever for listening. I appreciate it.